The New York Times, yeah. this past Sunday, there was an article about the first black punk rock group called Death in the 70s, and they found these old recordings. I was just trying to, I was trying to create an idea of how to expand rock. My name is Henry Rollins. Henry, I think I know you. Oh, I see. You're a character now. I, well, I just do whatever I feel. You are gonna make me scream like a white lady. <laughs> Woo! Shut up. This is Deep Tracks, the show where I give you the entire history of rock music through podcast-sized chunks every week. I am your intrepid host, Doug. That's a lot of nuts, McCullough. When I was a kid, I was really into superheroes and comic books. Actually, who am I kidding? I'm still really into superheroes and comic books. But in particular, when I was about 10 or 11, I started creating my own superheroes and my own comics. Uh, initially, I enjoyed the creation of new characters more than the development of already existing ones. So I, I kind of went through this phase for a couple of years where I was just making up new comic book characters left and right. I loved doing the character design. I was really into drawing and I also really enjoyed uh coming up with backstories for them and you know devising what sorts of powers or abilities they would have or what kind of gear and all that kind of stuff so you know of course the most important part in creating all these new characters was i needed to come up with names for them i am batman i'm spider-man star lord who star lord man so at first i would just flip through a thesaurus <laughs> looking for cool words that I thought sounded like superhero or supervillain names. Uh, every once in a while, I would add the title Captain or Doctor in front of them. Uh, after a while, I started to cast a wider net in my search for name ideas, and this led me to look through the Bible. You see, I'd already used the Bible to help me come up with a name for my character in Dungeons & Dragons. He was a, a rogue named Barnabas, so I knew it had some possibilities. I remember during my search, while flipping through the book of Psalms, I noticed these funny words at the beginnings of the chapters or sometimes in the middle. I, I could sort of tell from the context that they weren't like the names of people, but there were something else. Uh, words like Selah and Maskil and Al-Taskith. Um, they sort of just left me scratching my head. And in case you're wondering, no, none of those words I just listed made the cut to become names for any of my comic book characters. <laughs> but uh, what I didn't realize at the time was... I had been looking at some of the earliest forms of music publishing right there. You see, psalms are songs. So it makes sense that those songs would include some ancient form of lead sheets or, you know, whatever. In this case, when it says Selah in the middle of the text, it was most likely marking a break or a pause in the music. Why are you so petrified of silence? Uh, while maskil, um, and I'm sorry, I'm probably butchering these these he beautiful Hebrew words. Anyway, while um, maskil meant uh, it was a song intended to give instruction or confer wisdom. So, you know, that word was like serving the purpose of signaling what type of song it would be. And Al-Tasketh uh, is most likely referring to a popular tune to which the words would have been sung. Kind of like saying, you know, sing these words to the tune of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star or to the tune of the Anacreontic Society <laughs> or whatever. My point is you had elements of timing, style and pitch right there 
roughly 1000 BCE. Then about 2000 years after those psalms were likely composed, uh, Christian monks in Europe who had derived their musical traditions from the ancient Greeks, which is why those modes I mentioned a couple episodes ago have names drawn from Greek culture, you know, like Dorian, Aeolian, Lydian, etc. Um, they developed a system of formalizing the chant for their liturgy. They decided to use little dots. The higher dots would represent higher notes in the chant. The lower dots represented lower notes. And there would be different types of dots. You know, some dots would represent longer held notes, while other dots would represent shorter ones. Does this sound familiar? So basically, the roots of modern musical notation, which communicates both pitch and rhythm, had been born. Now, in this episode, we are going to do some world building. So far, we've been talking about some of the elements contributing directly to rock music's DNA. But we haven't spent much time setting the stage for many of the other important factors at play during the time rock came into formation. So as I mentioned at the end of last episode, we'll be talking about radio, the recording industry, uh, record charts, as well as what genres and artists dominated music pre-1955. But first, we need to talk about the vertical within the music industry that dominated the industry pre-1945, sheet music. Segway. As I pointed out in my little intro story to this episode, the idea of physically recording visual symbols of musical sounds and ideas has been around for thousands of years. But music publishing, which in large part owes its early rise to Ottaviani Petrucci in the early 1500s, uh, that would come to be a huge factor in shaping musical tastes during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The, the first known instance of published music in the United States was in 1764, uh, in which a guy named Josiah Flagg printed some collections of popular and religious music in the colonies. But the, the first professional music publishers wouldn't arrive from Europe until after the American Revolution uh, in the late 1770s. At that time, music publishing was mostly used for you know, so-called classical music, with copyright laws being so lax and royalties being practically non-existent at that time. There really weren't a lot of songwriters actively publishing their stuff. Songs um, usually became popular primarily through word of mouth or through traveling shows, like you know that minstrel show we talked about a few episodes ago. Uh, however, as the industry grew, there were those who saw the potential to make money if they could protect their intellectual property. This led to a number of songwriters, composers, and musicians at the turn of the century to band together, <laughs> band together, and create a sort of enclave on and around 28th Street in New York. This area would eventually come to be called Tin Pan Alley. Too many artists rely on platforms for their success, but it's time to take back control of your career. We gotta take the power back. This podcast never would have happened if it hadn't been for Craftsman Creative. First, I read the book, then I listened to the podcast, then I reached out and received super helpful coaching from Darren, who is my new Yoda for monetizing my creative pursuits. And now I'm taking their courses to help build my creative business. Craftsman Creative is a powerful resource to help artists like you build bespoke creative businesses. They have courses, coaching, and community all ready to help you grow, as well as a weekly newsletter, which you can get for free at craftsmancreative.co. 
That's Craftsman, M-A-N, creative.co. And now back to the show. There are different accounts about where that name comes from, and no one knows for sure. So we're not going to dwell on that. Uh, The more important thing to point out here is that even though Tin Pan Alley initially referred to a place, it also came to be known as a repertory and a process. The repertory, as John Kovash and Andrew Flory put it in their textbook on the history of rock entitled What's That Sound, followed a, quote, standard, though very flexible, formal pattern, end quote. Essentially, if you analyze the structure of Tin Pan Alley songs, you'll find a formula to them. It's not unlike episodic television. And this formula or structure refers to the Tin Pan Alley process, a process that will be important to remember when we eventually talk about the Brill Building approach when we get to the early 60s. So, you know, take notes or something. Now, the process to which I'm referring is the craftsman approach to songwriting. Um not the craftsman creative <laughs> approach, but the craftsman approach, lower lowercase c craftsman. Uh, essentially, what you had in Tin Pan Alley were a bunch of offices with songwriters, executives, publishers. You know, basically it was like a Walmart of music publishing jobs from creation to licensing to distribution and marketing. It was a very, you know, assembly line approach to songwriting. Uh, these weren't blues artists singing about hard times or daily life, and these weren't country artists memorializing folk traditions or burying their souls through song. You know, these were craftsmen assembling products to fill a specific order. Uh, so, again, referring to what's that sound, the Tin Pan Alley repertory was, quote, unified not only in the way it was structured, but also in the way it was marketed. In rock music, the basic unit of trade is a specific recorded performance available on a record, tape, CD, MP3, or other format. But in the Tin Pan Alley era, the basic unit of trade was the song itself, not a specific recording of the song. End quote. I'll quickly insert here that I had a personal experience that may illustrate this differentiation somewhat. During my undergrad, I won a composition competition in which a piece that I wrote would be performed by the Omaha Symphony Orchestra. It was actually an uh, amazing experience for me as a young college student to hear my music performed by a professional orchestra in one of their concerts. And the concert was recorded, a copy of which was given to me for personal reference after the show. Um, However, if I wanted to use the recording for anything other than my own personal usage, I had to get written permission from the orchestra because... While I owned the rights to the music, they owned the rights to the performance of that music. So there's that differentiation you see there between the rights of the music itself, but then the rights of the performance of the music. The rights to publishing the music or recording the music, as opposed to who writes the music. It gets really messy. Anyway, I'll continue, though, with the Kovash Flory quote on how Tin Pan Alley music was marketed. Quote, A successful song was recorded by a series of artists, each trying to tailor the tune to suit his or her personal style, and the more versions, the more money that can be made by the songwriter and his or her publisher, end quote. So what they're saying is is really the, the point of getting the song performed was just for marketing purposes, because ultimately you're trying to push people towards purchasing the sheet music of the music itself, right? So performers would give their own kind of personal style to the performance 
but essentially what they were selling was the song itself in sheet music form. Now, real quick, I just want to give fair warning. Uh, I drew very heavily from the Kovash Flory textbook for this episode, so I'll be referring to it a bunch more. Anyway, to demonstrate what that quote was talking about, um, you know, there with the, the song being recorded by a series of artists with their personal style, I'm going to play some clips of I'm Through With Love performed by Bean Crosby, Nat King Cole, and Ella Fitzgerald. So first, here's the Bean Crosby version. I'm through with love, I'll never fall again. Said adieu to love, don't ever call again. For I must have you or no one. And so I'm through with love. And now here's the Nat King Cole version. I'm through with love. I'll never fall again. Said adieu to love. Don't ever call again. For I must have you or no one. Because I'm through with love. And now here's Ella Fitzgerald. I'm through with love. I'll never fall again. Said adieu to love, don't ever call again. For I must have you or no one. And so I'm through with love. So you can hear the differences in each of those versions, right? With their, their styles that each of them brings to it. Not only in their, their own vocal styles, but, but even the the performance of the instruments themselves, what instruments are chosen that are built around the styles of those singers. Now, the songwriters in Tin Pan Alley were rarely performers themselves. These songwriters I'm talking about are people like George and Ira Gershwin, Irving Berlin, Cole Porter, you know, to name a few. They were the creators of the product. It was then up to the publishers to pitch the songs to performers who would work them into their sets. But once songwriters had had enough hits, you would see things happen the other way around in which they would be approached by performers or industry execs and commissioned for specific projects. So for example, let's say you're a vaudeville star who needs a new hit that capitalizes on America's favorite pastime. Boom. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. Cause it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Or you're a radio singer who needs something to sing for your show on Armistice Day. Blammo! Or you're a movie producer who needs a holiday song for a musical starring Bing Crosby, Shazam! And I know Shazam is used for a very different purpose than creating hit songs, but it was just the next word that came to mind. 
Anyway, this craftsman approach is a different approach to music creation than what we've looked at so far in this podcast. Artists like Hank Williams or Robert Johnson were writing and arranging songs based on what their personal tastes and experiences were. They were building on riffs and or lyrics that would come to them organically, and then they had the freedom to do with those musical ideas whatever sounded good to them. They were just lucky that those ideas sounded good to other people as well, though poor Robert Johnson wouldn't live to see that happen. But Tin Pan Alley was different. It was kind of the other way around. You didn't create something in the hopes that it would fill audience needs. You were often given the need first, and then you crafted a song to fill that need. Even if you weren't commissioned by a specific performer or filmmaker for a specific occasion or movie, it was still a very top-down approach to music creation because there were always the publishing execs who were telling you what would sell and thus what to write. You weren't always allowed the freedom to just get up in the morning and follow your muse and you know, whether it was a song idea that interested you personally or not, that was irrelevant. You had to come up with something. The guys who wrote Take Me Out to the Ball Game had never been to a baseball game in their lives. A White Christmas was written by a Jewish man. Personal experience and preference meant nothing. Only results. Now, before anyone thinks I'm trivializing Tin Pan Alley, I will point out there is something to be said about that sort of skill. They're not just artists. They're artisans. They may not be breaking molds or moving the art's evolution forward, but they are people who have mastered the craft and can mold it and manipulate it according to whatever the situation demands. Composers like Haydn and Mozart functioned primarily under a very similar directive. They had their patrons who would say, you know, something like, I'm totally throwing a party this weekend for the Duke of Awesomedom and I need something to impress him while he's here. Write me something fun that will show how rich and amazing I am. Oh, and dedicate it to me so he'll think everyone likes me. I don't know why I made him a surfer, but anyway. You know, then the composer would go and throw together a string quartet or some other chamber ensemble piece. And then the, you know, the 18th century's version of session musicians would rehearse it real quick and then perform it. Uh, many of those composers, Mozart in particular, chafed under this system. And the fact that we find so much complexity and genius in their compositions is probably really just a sign of them trying to combat the boredom of fulfilling another dumb request from whoever was paying their bills. But it's not all drudgery. As a composer myself, I've had some experience in this realm. While I was in college, I once co-wrote a bunch of music for a musical stage play that was a spin on the epic of Ramayana in a film noir setting. So the writer slash director wanted the music to be a mixture of old big band and jazz with Indian ragas. And I had a blast combining those musical traditions together into some you know, unique hybrids. Uh, another time I wrote some music for a musical production in Florida in which almost every song was a different style of music. So I was writing stuff that had to sound like funk, polka, blues, pop, and so on. It really stretched me as a composer in ways that I wouldn't have thought to do on my own. Recently, though, I was able to indulge in a project that came my way that also hit on some of my other interests. Um, so I've been able to do a couple of intro tracks for Level 1 Geek, a, uh, a tabletop gaming Twitch stream, um, the most recent of which was for a Nordic mystery horror game called Vasen. that's always nice you know as when projects plop in my lap that also tickle my other fancies and actually while i'm at it if you enjoy tabletop gaming of any kind or 
even if you just breathe oxygen, please check them out at level1geek.com or their Instagram is also level1geek. That's level, the numeral one, geek. But anyway, to get back on topic, my point is, you know, it's a very different approach uh, than other times when I just sit down at the piano and just, you know, start jamming. But it's still fulfilling, you know, for me anyway, most of the time. <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll be revisiting this concept of these two different approaches to music, the craftsman versus the artist, when we discuss the Beatles and the evolution of their music. Uh, the main takeaway I want you to have for Tin Pan Alley is that for them, sheet music was the biggest thing. The point of performers like Bing Crosby or even Ella Fitzgerald was to drive people to the music store to purchase the sheet music. I mean, you know, drive them, like push them in that direction, not like literally drive them in their car to the store. That'd be weird. Anyway, we're going to shift gears <laughs> and now look at what would eventually become sheet music's biggest competitors, the recording industry and radio broadcasting. That's right. They would eventually shift from being the publicity arm of sheet music to overshadowing sheet music completely. Now I am the master. Mary had a little lamb, its feet was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. That was Thomas Edison. He recorded that in 1877 when he invented the phonograph. It would be another 25 years before recording technology would be developed enough to be a viable moneymaker. Initially, the fledgling record companies sent guys out to record popular arias from operas, but they quickly began releasing recordings of other types of music as well. Uh, brass bands did the best on those early recordings, partly because that music was popular at the time, but also because those instruments just came through really well on those old machines. Uh, this is somewhat ironic because this ended up being a boon to the career of John Philip Sousa. I say it's ironic because Sousa was not a fan of the phonograph. I'm going to read an excerpt from uh, chapter three of the book, Listen to This by Alex Ross. No, it's not the Alex Ross, the famous comic book artist and writer. This is a different Alex Ross. Um, he's also the author of the book, The Rest is Noise. He's one of my favorite uh, writers on music. I highly recommend anything he's written. But anyway, from his book, Listen to This, chapter three, Infernal Machines, um, he has some great quotes uh, from John Philip Sousa talking about recording technology and how it would destroy music. Um, testifying before the United States Congress in 1906, uh, Sousa said, quote, These talking machines are going to ruin the artistic development of music in this country. When I was a boy in front of every house in the summer evenings, you would find young people together singing the songs of the day or the old songs. Today you hear these infernal machines going day and night. We will not have a vocal cord left. The time is coming when no one will be ready to submit himself to the ennobling discipline of learning music. Everyone will have their ready-made or ready-pirated music in their cupboards. I love how even as far back as John Philip Sousa, we had the term pirated music around. Anyway, continuing with Sousa's quote, The Nightingale's song is delightful because the Nightingale herself gives it forth. End quote. Meaning his point is, is the the song of the bird or the song of the the the, you know, the actual music itself is beautiful because it's being presented live by an actual musician or bird i'm kind of getting lost in the analogy here actually another meaning for the word nightingale is you know somebody who can sing so i guess the only person here talking about birds is me but anyway his point is recordings bad live good but continuing on with uh, our story of Edison, seven years after he invented the phonograph, 
Marconi invented radio telegraphy in 1894. Um, at first, the only sounds being transmitted through radio waves were the little beeps and boops of Morse code communications. Uh, but then in 1900, a guy named Reginald Fessenden, uh, remember that name, successfully transmitted speech over a distance of about a mile, which appears to have been the first successful audio transmission using radio signals. They were too garbled to be commercially viable, but by 1906, he had perfected the process enough that on Christmas Eve, he was able to broadcast music and spoken word from his location in Brant Rock, Massachusetts, well enough that ships at sea were able to pick it up. Which, uh, can I just insert a little aside here? Imagine you were one of those guys on one of those ships. You know, radio is brand new up until this point. And, you know, up until this point, it's only been used for sending, you know, the equivalent of R2-D2 monologues through the airwaves. And then suddenly one night you're out at sea and you hear some guy playing Oh Holy Night on a violin, followed by him reading some Bible passages. It must have been mind-blowing or at the very least, you know, a head scratcher. Nevertheless, by 1912, Marconi had built the first factory designed solely for the purpose of assembling radios for distribution. Radio broadcasting and the creation of radio stations wouldn't really start until the 1920s. over WAM, and this comes to you direct from the Edison studio. In August of 1920, the first known radio news program was broadcast in Detroit, Michigan, under ownership of the CBS network. We shall now broadcast the election returns. <clears throat> we are receiving these returns by special arrangement with the Pittsburgh Post and Sun. We'd appreciate it if anyone hearing this broadcast would communicate with us, as we are very anxious to know how far the broadcast is reaching and how it is being received. The first college radio station began broadcasting in October of 1920 from Union College in Schenectady, New York. Yes, I had to Google how to pronounce Schenectady. 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 Uh, and this was under the personal call letters of Wendell King, an African-American student at the school. Also in October 1920, that same station in Schenectady, I <laughs> can't say that name enough, uh, aired what is believed to be the first public entertainment broadcast in the United States, a series of Thursday night concerts initially heard within a 100-mile radius and then later for a 1,000-mile radius. In November 1920, it aired the first broadcast of a sporting event. That's a fair lead. He's edging off a little farther. Here's the pitch. So the one thing you may have noticed that hasn't been played over the radio yet is a record. You see, initially records and radio were two completely different, you know, disconnected spheres. If you if you listen to the radio, it was understood that you were listening to a live performance. This was a, a large reason why Nashville became Nashville. The Grand Ole Opry, which first went on the air in 1925 under its original name of Barn Dance, would be bringing in musicians every week to do live performances on a show. And so with all these country and Western musicians coming and going all the time, you know, you started to see an infrastructure build up in support of that. Guitar shops, instrument repairs, sheet music and paraphernalia, etc. That's how that city became the, you know, the mothership of country Western. And even when, out of necessity for some smaller, poorer stations, pre-recorded material was played over the air, it was generally frowned upon and even seen as dishonest. So if you were in the mood to listen to some music while entertaining guests you used your record player. But when the family sat down to enjoy a show together, 
they would sit around the radio. You see, a large part of radio was still news and sports broadcasts, not to mention FDR's fireside chats that ran from 1933 to 1945. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My friends, I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States. While the entertainment side of radio would come to be dominated by dramatic performances like... Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than an airplane, more powerful than a locomotive, impervious to bullets. Up in the sky, look, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman! I'll a fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty Hyo Silver, the Lone Ranger. I say, do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? Uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Cylindrical oh, shape. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable, but I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is... That's kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seemed to... That um, last clip from those different uh, shows was from Orson Welles' infamous War of the Worlds broadcast in 1938, which supposedly caused mass panic when many radio listeners believed it was real. Though, I'll include in the show notes uh, a link to an NPR article that sheds some light on that legend. Now, despite all of that, one of the most important things to know about radio's impact on music during those early years is that it helped create a national audience and break up the regionalism of music. I've mentioned regionalism a little bit before in the show. So remember how you know many early blues styles, for example, were known by their place of origin, such as Delta Blues, which came from the Mississippi Delta. And remember how much of the music that the Carter family performed wasn't really well known outside their native region until Ralph Peer recorded and distributed their performances. There's this great quote from sportscaster Red Barber that captures this perfectly. Quote, people who weren't around in the 20s when radio exploded can't know what it meant. This milestone for mankind. Suddenly, with radio, there was instant human communication. No longer were our homes isolated and lonely and silent. The world came into our homes for the first time. Music came pouring in. Laughter came in. News came in. The world shrank with radio. End quote. With radio, you could hear artists from a completely different region performing their music and be exposed for the first time to styles and sounds that you wouldn't have heard otherwise. As John Kovash put it, quote, when NBC went coast to coast with its national radio network in 1928, regional boundaries and popular culture began to blur. Network radio audiences suddenly became national audiences, end quote. This new creature called national audience will be a huge factor in rock music's birth. But Kovash also points out that, quote, especially important to the history of popular music is the way some pop styles became national while other styles kept their regional identities. To a great extent, this can be attributed to the programming of the networks. The mainstream pop music of Bing Crosby, the Andrews Sisters, the Big Bands, and later Frank Sinatra were heard frequently on network radio. Country and Western and rhythm and blues were not, end quote. There's a reason for this. Continuing with Kovash, quote, The mainstream pop played on network radio during the 1930s and 40s was directed at a white, middle-class listening audience. Music that business people thought might appeal to only low-income white or low-income black listeners, rural or urban, was mostly excluded or at best given a marginal role in radio programming. 
Since country and western and rhythm and blues were considered music for such low-income listeners, these styles were not often programmed on network radio. As a consequence, they retained their regional distinctions, end quote. The rise of radio networks would be a large factor in what music would reach this new national audience. Even if your station had the ability to broadcast farther than it actually did, radio stations couldn't just blast their signals into the world willy-nilly. There were regulations within the U.S. for how far and wide certain stations could broadcast their signals. Uh, Actually, uh, some broadcasters found a way around this by placing their transmitters in Mexico, where they'd be outside the restrictions of the U.S. and then, you know, blast their signals as far as possible, um, some of which reached as far north as Chicago. Uh, But then at night, um, while many radio stations ended their programming for the day, other stations, super stations, had the rights to boost their signals while those sleeping stations would pull theirs back. So the way that regionalism was impacted by radio was even affected by what types of licenses different radio stations had. If you think about how the output of recording artists is influenced by what they're exposed to and raised on, then these broadcasting licenses even had a direct impact on what type of music the next generation would be creating. Imagine if those super stations that could boost their signal were all, you know, 24-7 polka music stations. I wonder what early rock music would have sounded like. But I digress. AM radio was the first to dominate the airwaves. That guy I mentioned earlier, Reginald Fessenden, was one of two guys to whom the invention of AM radio is attributed, with Lee DeForest being the other guy. It was a better technology for broadcasting than what had existed before it, and it would reign as the king of radio broadcasting all the way until 1978. Uh, Actually, in fact, as a kid growing up, I remember my mom Um, still tuned in to AM radio whenever she wanted to listen to music, while I would tune in to FM radio, which is, of course, the format most people use today. Well, at least, you know, for those who even still listen to radio anymore. Uh, The FM platform was patented. The FM platform was patented. Patented. Oh my gosh, I can't say the word. The FM platform was patented in 1933, and FM broadcasting in the U.S. began in the late 1930s. Initially, all the popular mainstream stuff was on AM, with everything else on FM. So basically the opposite of how things are today. This would start to change in the 1960s and 70s with album-oriented rock and San Francisco DJ Tom Donahue, with 1978 being the first year that more listeners would tune in to FM rather than AM. Um, But those are tidbits for a future episode. For now, it's important to understand that, for the most part, whenever we're talking about radio in these episodes, we're talking about AM radio. But like I said earlier, a large part of radio's entertainment programming was dramatic programming. When television entered the scene, it changed everything. For example, an early radio show was The Lone Ranger, and an early television show was The Lone Ranger. So, if you had the option of listening to The Lone Ranger versus watching The Lone Ranger, which would you choose? Needless to say, TV supplanted radio's dramatic programming so that radio stations were forced to find new material with which to fill their airtime. It was only natural that music would fill this void. Thus, music went from being an occasional smattering on the airwaves to dominating the airwaves. And of course, because of this, you couldn't realistically expect to have live performers all the time. So radio stations had to start hiring people to play pre-recorded material, or as it came to be known, 
spinning platters, and thus was born the disc jockey. However, we're going to end things there for today. Next time, we will pick up where we left off, and we will discuss the birth of the American DJ, as well as uh, Billboard and record charts, and a few other things that we need to discuss before we can finally get to the birth of rock. Until then, feel free to... No, no, don't feel free. I demand you go to my website. Check it out. Um, see my newsletter. Subscribe to my newsletter. Also, feel free to check out my Instagram. It's Deep Tracks Podcast. As well as you can go to my Facebook page, which is also Deep Tracks Podcast. You can support the show by telling your friends, liking, subscribing, downloading, writing me into your will, all kinds of stuff. Thank you so much for listening. And here, I'll try some sign-offs here real quick. Let's see off the top of my head. Um, thank you and keep on rocking. No, 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 no. About you are the real rocker. Oh, this is horrible. Okay, wait, hold on. Let me think. You are the one who truly rocks. No, wait, wait, no, I can do better. Um, you are the role in my rock. No, okay, wait, wait, wait.